Would you please join with me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can come before you this day and once again cease from our work, gather together as your people, and sit at your feet and be fed from your word, that which you would have for us as your people. And I pray that you would take not only our hearts and our minds and illumine them, that you would make us increasingly salty and illuminous people to the varying degrees you've created each and every one of us, Lord, so that we'd be used for your glory and we'd be a great encouragement to one another for generations to come. For in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. When I was a little boy, every birthday in February, I would ask for corned beef for my birthday meal. You know, it kind of seems strange. It's no big deal, corned beef. But it was to me. And there was one particular birthday. I was about eight years old as I was growing into maturity. I realized that my dad grew up in abject poverty. I had no clue. You know, he was my dad. We're eating my corned beef. And he goes, well, this brings back memories. I go, why is that, Dad? He goes, well, it's the only kind of meat we ever had. It was salted. I go, what, you didn't have refrigerators? He goes, son, refrigerators weren't invented when I was born. <laughs> well, how about an icebox like mom's family? He goes, well, they were rich. We were poor. We salted all our meat. So we'd buy a brisket. We'd salt it and cure it in a salt, you know, salt water, basically. I go, well, why'd you do that? Well, son, if you don't do that, it's going to decay, and it won't taste very good. This is good corned beef. And so we had a good conversation about the blessings that we have in our family. And I realized my dad wasn't so stupid, you know. In today's passage, Jesus is teaching us about these principles. He's teaching not only his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount about how God intends to use them coming off the Beatitudes, He's also teaching us here on the West Shore of what it means to be salt and light in our day. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. You can find it on your devices in the ESV app. You can also find it in the back of the bulletin if you're visiting with us. We've been in this series on the church and you now. This is the fifth week. We started off talking about how Jesus is our focus. And we entrust all our lives into our gentle and lowly Lord. Because that's who he is. He's holy awesome, but he's gentle and lowly. His first initiative towards us is his compassion and love. And so we entrust all our lives to him. From there, we recognize that as new creations, as 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old is gone. The new has arrived. There it is right there. You have justification. We've been saved by grace through faith, and we're sanctified by grace through faith as God's people. And we learned that we are ambassadors from Christ, God making his appeal through us. That's a heavy call, it seems, when you really think about it, but we have our gentle and lowly Savior to help us every step of the way. Third week, we learned that because of that, and from here on, all these texts, it's just who we are as Christians. It's not that we do these things so we can be Christians. No, this is who we are. So we're fully devoted to the apostles' teaching learning, loving one another, and fellowship, koinonia, 
the worshiping God, both personally and corporately, as well as being people of prayer, individually and corporately. And so last week we learned because we live that way, every single one of us is indispensable. Every single one of us have a calling right here. And the eye cannot say to the hand of the body of Christ, I have no need of you. No, we need one another. And every single one of us is indispensable. That's Paul's words. That's not mine. And what we tend to do, and God said, he composes the members of the body. And what do we do? We self-compose. We decide what we want to do. And Paul reminded us, oh, no, that's not the way we're to be. And so we arrive today in Matthew chapter 5 after Jesus has begun the Sermon on the Mount, the most incredible, famous sermon ever. One year we'll go through this. But today, what we learn is that, number one, the world is in a constant state of decay. Number two, salt and light has come into the world to save it. And three, in Christ, we are salt and light. Okay? So let's look at this. First, that the world is subject to decay. As I mentioned with my father, there were, up until the early 20th century, refrigeration wasn't a thing. So people salted their meat from going bad. You'd salt it like crazy, as a matter of fact. And uh, therefore, it wouldn't decay. Light, you must keep in mind, that there were light bulbs in Jesus' day. You had simple oil lamps. You know, probably a, a little wick floating in a little cup of oil. You know, and if you've ever been in a city where the, all the lights go out and all of a sudden it's completely bright to completely dark, you know that it can be greatly disturbing, disorienting. And it feels like the world is decaying. And what Jesus is saying, when the world needs salt and when the world needs light, that left to itself, inevitably, it's going to go into greater, greater decay and darkness. In other words, everything's falling apart. And if you're 40, over 40, you know how true that is. We're all falling apart, and it takes a terrific amount of work to slow it down, amen? But, but inevitably, it happens anyway. We literally fall apart. Everything's falling apart. Flowers fall apart really quick. You know, that's why we have to replace the altar flowers every week, right? You know, rocks fall apart more slowly, but eventually the rocks split and turn into sand. But things left to themselves go to pieces. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says the world needs salt and the world needs light. Now, Hanging around where I hang around in our community, I'm sure you guys have felt the same. What We live in a culture that might claim some spirituality, but really they live as naturalistic relativists, you know? In other words, they, they want to have the morality. They want to eat at Jesus' table a little, little bit, but they don't want to sit under his lordship. They want to live as moral people, but yet... When you press them, they go, well, we don't know. All we really know is what we know in nature. And there really isn't much hope out there. Well, Jesus doesn't leave that option to us. <laughs> Jesus comes along and recognizes and calls us to recognize him for who he is. 
and the reality is, I answer those questions, well, what's your explanation for beauty? Where do you get beauty? And they go, well, I'm not real sure about that. Well, you, you can't have it both ways. Because if there's no, if there's in your worldview, if there's no God, you might want to borrow for your morality from Jesus' table. You have no explanation for beauty, for the beauty of music, for the beauty of art, for the beauty of creation. And you might say, well, Gene, that's a rather dark way of looking at it. I go, oh, no, 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 no. You have to see what Jesus is saying, what the Bible is saying, what you, everybody has to admit to. Things are falling apart, and ultimately, even the wisest people have said that makes everything meaningless if you don't believe in Christ. Place your trust in Christ. There was a young man named Philippe who was a French scientist who said to a Christian friend, I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if there's salt and light out there. I don't know if there's any supernatural at all. He was in love with a woman named Francois, and he wrote a Christian friend two letters. In the first letter, he said, it's very convenient for us to stay together and get married. It will really hurt our careers. We only want this because of our hormones and chemistry anyway. There's no scientific basis for love. We shouldn't marry or destroy our careers, so let's just part. We can find someone else who can meet our basic needs. Later on, he writes back to the same Christian friend, and he says this, You know, I don't know why it's so hard to live without a permanent commitment. My scientific understanding of man is that we're the result of chance happening in the universe, a very complex machine, and all we do is programmed by our genes and our instincts and social learning. So love is an illusion. So relationships are just a force. Beauty has no meaning at all. But I never realized the ideas that I've had about life were draining it of so much joy. My lover and I cannot live on the basis of them, even though they're true. It's as if we don't know who we are. Now, some might say, oh, he's being extreme. He's being very pessimistic. No, no. He's being consistent. Listen, if you say, I don't know whether there's a God, I don't know whether there's anything outside of nature, all I know is nature is breaking apart, then you have to admit there's no basis for beauty. Listen, music sounds are glorious, but hey, if there's nothing outside of this world, don't you realize the only reason you like music instead of the sound of a hammer or a tree falling is because your nervous system likes it. That's all it is. According to a naturalist, Music is an illusion. See, the beauty and glory of it is an illusion. If you live as if there's beauty, and if you live as if there's a right and wrong, and if you live as if there's meaning, and if you live as if there's love, and you live what you're doing, you're living on borrowed capital from Jesus' table. No, you're living as if there is salt and light <laughs> out there in the universe. And it's not very fair, quite frankly. Because you're actually living as if there is a God. As if you're eating off the table of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. The world is in constant decay. Secondly, salt and light has come into the world to save it. Jesus says that there's salt and light, however, and even though, you, you know, uh, you have to think about it, the salt and life really is Jesus himself. He doesn't explicitly say it here, but he does. 
He doesn't mention himself per se. He says, you are light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. This tells us what kind of light we are. And this is critical, brothers and sisters. He doesn't say we're like the sun or like the stars. Because suns and stars have light in themselves. You're like a lamp. A lamp can't produce light. A lamp can only hold light. That means Jesus is implying very strongly here, and what's stated elsewhere is that Jesus Christ himself is the light. And you and I become the light of the world only as you are lit by him. Your light is derived. You're a lamp. You're not the sun. So when Jesus calls himself the light of the world, John chapter 8, when he's called the light of the world in John chapter 1, what does that mean? Well, number one, it means that he is truth. And the truth illumines. It illuminates. It makes all things noticeable. Secondly, it means he's gloriously good. He cannot lie. He cannot cheat. He cannot do anything evil. He's beautiful in all his glory. He's beautiful in his loveliness. And that's why we call him the light. Then third, he, he's light because he, he guides us into what is real. He exposes things for what it is. You can see a light in itself. Then the light shows everything else around it, right? We have the lights on this morning, so now I can see the chairs. The chairs cannot show us the light, but the light can show us the chairs. The difference between the light and the chairs is light is the way in which everything else is seen, right? Jesus Christ, then, is the ultimate reality. When he says, I am the light of the world, he, he who walks in my light will have the light of life and will never walk in darkness again. When he says that, he's saying, I am the true guide, and I, and I alone, show you the way. You see what he's saying? When he says, I am the light of the world, he is also saying, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And our culture hates that. Yet that's the essence of the Christian message. Some people will say, listen, the real problem with all this is that if you believe that, then you're saying all the other religions don't have any truth in them. That Jesus is the light and all the other religions don't really have the light. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. We are saying that. And somebody would respond, and I've heard that several times. Well, that's wrong. I think all religions are equally valid. There are they're all trying to get after the same reality. To which I respond, you can't say that. Jesus doesn't give you that option. He says, I am the light. Every other founder of every other religion says, I'm just a prophet. Jesus comes along and says, oh no, I'm not just a prophet. I'm God. I'm just not pointing to the light. I am the light. You see, so you either have to say, you're right, Jesus, you're the light. Or no, you're not the light, therefore you're darkness. But he, the, he can't be equally valid to the others. 
He doesn't give you that option. In fact, some people will tell you how wrong it is to evangelize others. That E word, right? How wrong it is to say Jesus is the light and try to convert people. I believe all religions are equally valid. When you see that, when you say that, you realize what you're doing, right? You're saying that your particular religious perspective, which is relativism, has more light than mine. Do you see what you're doing there? What you're saying is, I have a particular understanding of world religions that are equally valid, and therefore my perspective, my understanding, has more light than you, who are so narrow into thinking Jesus is the light of the world. What you're doing is evangelizing me by saying, I can't evangelize. You're saying you must adopt my position to be more tolerant of other people which is basically another way of evangelizing somebody you're telling me not to evangelize. You can't argue for relativism without denying it. Jesus Christ is either the light of the world or he's darkness, and by his claim he puts you in that position. Now, if Jesus is the light, he's the only way we're ever going to see reality. If Jesus is salt, he says, in me all things hold together. If only Jesus can renew the world so that relationships stay together, so that the body stays together, only Jesus Christ can renew the heart. We can be realistic about the decay. And we can see what can happen if the life of the ideal comes into the real. Okay? Jesus is the salt and light. And the third and final point here is that you and I can be the salt and light of the world in Christ Jesus. So let's look at this. In other words, when we receive him as Savior and as Lord, when he comes into our life by the power of the Holy Spirit, his salt, his preserving power comes into our life, and we become the salt of the earth. We become the light of the world. And so when Jesus Christ says you're the salt and light of the world, he's saying what we should be like as Christians in our world. What, it, what are we like? This is just who we are, again. Number one, salt and light exposes decay and darkness. If you are light, that means your life should be so beautiful that when it comes into contact with other parts of the environment, the beauty of our life is demonstrated and shows up for other things for what they really are. You go to the office, for example, and your very presence reveals the dishonesty. Your very presence reveals the gossip. Your very presence reveals the racism. The very presence reveals the promiscuity just by simply you being a Christian. You walk on in and immediately makes the corruption look like corruption. The dishonesty look like dishonesty. The racism look like racism. The gossip look like gossip. If your life, by the way you live it, you know, you can handle pressure by the way you take criticism, by the way you treat the people who work with you, the way, the way you treat people who work under you. If you're like Jesus Christ, the beauty of that's going to show up in the reality of the environment. A good light shows real color, right? You know, you ever, you know, it's getting darker and darker and darker. It happens at least two or three times a winter for me. I thought the socks were blue, but they were black, or vice versa. That looks stupid, you know? 
You can't tell if they're blue and black, but when the light comes on, you can. A really good light shows you the real colors. If you're a Christian walking like Jesus, then the beauty of your life shows to everybody around you what is good, what is bad. You know, that phrase we have here, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's what happens. The good there is two Greek words are used for good. There's the Greek word agathos and kalos is used here. Agathos means good and quality. Kalos means beautiful. When Matthew wrote that, the good there is kalos, meaning people ought to say, that's amazing to our works. So that's the question. Is your life so remarkable? It shows up the contrast between the beauty of Christ and what's around you, or do you blend in? Is there any, nothing remarkable about your life? Is there anything that stands out? We're the light. And the beauty of our lives shows up the real colors around us. That's one way. Secondly, if we're salt and light, that means we bring joy to people. Because salt is not just a preservative, it's also the original seasoning. You know, Kim hates it because she has a little high blood pressure, so she doesn't get salt. You know, we get some fries. I'm just slaying, just slaying. She goes, you're putting too much salt on. I go, I'm not you, baby. <laughs> just tastes so good. It's beautiful. The beauty of our lives shows up there in the way we season our neighborhood. It brings out the taste. We're the stability where we live, where we work, where we play. Because we don't look at a situation and say, what can I get out of this? How can I use this workplace as a stepping stone? How can I bring the best out of this group, even if I hate it? I'm called to it right now. One of the big problems we have is that we try to use things as stepping stones. A Christian goes to work and says, how can I make this the best possible place to work for the people I work with? And sometimes it's a mighty big corrupt organization I know. Well, then just think of your cubicle and the people in the cubicle next to you. If you're a student, look at the, your desk and the students next to you in the classroom. But a Christian brings joy. It brings joy to the people around it. And salt and light means bringing the beauty of your life. Shows up things of what you are. And to be salt and light means you bring that joy also. That it means we work together. Because you can't just salt with one grain of salt. You need the whole thing. <laughs> right? A city is a corporate place. We're a city on a hill. Salt has to work together with other salt. One little grain is not going to season anything, and that means we have to be a unit as a church. So it's true to be salt and light means that individually we get involved in people's lives and we show them the beauty of Christ. And actually, it's only as a group, as a community, that Jesus Christ is talking about here. Do we realize that? That means, for example... The way in which we get along, as different as we all are, 
is our testimony to the good news of Christ. And the way we get equipped here and scatter out throughout the West Shore in which we involve ourselves in our community is going to be a way the rest of the world can really see who Jesus Christ really is. See, the church is not a club. In Paul's words, we're ambassadors. We're, we're a colony of a new humanity where people can see how race relationships should work, how honest business should work, what family life should work, all under the lordship of Christ. So this means that we're not allowed really inside the church to only talk about the kinds of people who you, you would not talk about outside the church. Do you ever look at another brother or sister and say, you know, I don't have a lot in common with you, but I love you. This, this is the place where that happens. People from totally different backgrounds, totally different races, come together and they love each other because they love Christ. If you have nobody you can talk to like that, you're not being salt, you're not being light. So the question is, as we close this morning, are you the light? The answer is, number one, if you are the light, you have to be lit. Have you ever been lit? Really? Have you really been converted? Have you really been born again? The only way to answer that is if Jesus' light has come into your life, there's been that aha moment. When was that? Start there, okay? Aha means there's been a time when you've said to yourself, I never realized how proud I was. How much I wanted to control my life, to self-compose it. Jesus Christ is beautiful. And I see how beautiful he is and how he's done everything for me. Has there ever been a time that aha has come? Where the lights came on. If that hasn't happened, then you haven't been lit. Perhaps it's happening now. Give yourself to Jesus, all of yourselves, and be lit with us. On the other hand, there's some of us who have been lit, but we have to be more like Moses coming down from the mount. He spent 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of the Lord, and his face was illumined. He was so radiant that the people said, Cover your face. I can't even look at you, Moses, because your face is so radiant. I wonder, is the West Shore seeing the beauty of our lives, that we're radiant with the love of Jesus Christ, the beauty of our lives, or do we just blend in? Many of us, I, I probably think, would say, well, Gene, I really want it to be that way. I really do. Okay, good. Then go back and listen to every sermon in this series. Remember that we're people who are devoted to the word, devoted to one another, doing life together, devoted 
to worship, committing to our lives to one another here in worship, not only on Sundays, but personally in my prayer closet throughout the week and, and spending some time in prayer, praying in my own time and, and when we come together on the Lord's Day. And if we don't show up, you can't do it, right? But you don't want to be a duty either. It's not just a duty. I grew up with duty. No, you never take it away from that gentle and lowly Savior who says, come, sit at my feet, hear my word, come to my table. It's not about getting your act together. It's about submitting to him. And as we pray it each and every week, we're not worthy to come up under your table. But you're the same Lord whose character is to always have mercy. Praise God. You know, Moses was up there 40 days and 40 nights talking to God, and we expect to spend five minutes with him every three days and think that we'll be enough to be the light of the world. I don't think so. This is what I do. This is what our little churches do. It's a sanctification of grace for the rest of our lives. Come walk with us. Because this is what we teach. How to be devoted to the word of God. How to be devoted to to one another, how to be devoted in worship, how to be devoted in prayer. Each and every one of us, crucial, indispensable in the body of Christ, salt and light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this day and grateful that you call us to be real salt that has incredible seasoning aspects to our culture. Because each and every one of us are missionaries. And I pray for anyone this morning within the sound of my voice who really has now realized they've never fully trusted you. And I pray this would be the day we would surrender all of our lives over to you. Every aspect of it. Confessing that I'm prideful. Confessing that I've blended in. I surrender it all to you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we pray for all who desire, who have been lit and desire to follow you as salt and light. And I just pray, Lord, you would help us to know you, to grow in you in our various little churches, and to serve you so that you be glorified in our midst. And people would look at our lives and say, that's amazing. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.